Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Pushkin. I am Maeve Higgins, and this is Solvable, interviews with the world's most innovative thinkers working to solve the world's biggest problems. My Solvable is putting the beneficiary as the focus of the aid and philanthropic sector and not the donor. We're letting the beneficiary choose where they want to spend the capital and taking that decision out of our own hands. That's Michael Fay, the co-founder and president of Give Directly. Now, imagine this. You're watching TV or you're on your phone and you see some terrible disaster. Or you read a story about extreme poverty in a country far from yours. If you want to help and if you're moved to do something, the action you take will most likely be to send money. There are NGOs and aid organisations all over the world, so perhaps you'll find one working in that country or specialising in the type of aid you think is needed there, and you send them a donation. Then you feel a little bit better. But it's important to check, isn't it? How effective is that aid system? Is it measured? Is it working for the people that it's supposed to be helping? And how can you even check that in the first place? Today, governments and donors are trying to find out how their money can make the biggest difference and, increasingly, they're turning to a promising new tool, cash transfers. In other words, giving people cold, hard cash. I guess it's not that new anymore because since the year 2000, a growing number of developing countries have introduced these cash transfers instead of giving aid in the form of goods or services. And more recently, donors and development banks have begun championing these programs. Cash transfer programs have spread from a few middle-income countries to basically all regions of the world. So you can understand why a growing number of voices are calling for an end to paying the middleman in the shape of aid organisations. And those voices are asking, 
why not just give directly to the people who need it? Well, our guest, Michael Fay, founded his organization, Give Directly, to do just that. His organization are currently testing a universal basic income in order to try and permanently end extreme poverty for thousands of people in Kenya by guaranteeing those people an income high enough to meet their basic needs. Now, if that works, they're planning to do the same in other regions. We'll see. The initiative launched in November 2017, and it's going along now. It's set to run for 12 years. Let's hear all about it now in this conversation with Jacob Weisberg. So, Michael, what's the nature of this problem? Is is the problem extreme poverty? Is it all poverty? What should we be thinking about trying to solve here? I think there are all sorts of these problems. There's extreme poverty. There are people that are poor because they were born in an extremely poor location. Uh, there are people in Iraq that are suffering post-genocide and trying to rebuild lives. And then I was recently in Uganda in a refugee camp where people have been for 30 years and don't have the capital to really build uh, and move on in their lives. And why is this the problem you're focusing on? I know your background is economics. How do you find yourself running an international aid organization? Uh, We slowly tripped into it. So I I did my PhD in development. And at that time, we were studying what worked and didn't work in poverty alleviation. And the reality was that before the early 2000s, this isn't something we spent much time on. If you're a pharmaceutical company, you might test your drug. But if you were an NGO or an aid organization, you weren't necessarily testing whether what you did was effective. What we learned in that period is that a lot of what we were doing was not as effective as we had hoped. And this simple idea of just giving people cash actually worked pretty well. Where does that idea come from? I mean, the idea that you replace something complicated with something simple when it comes to international aid. Oh, it's aid. the simplest idea, and we should take no credit for it. I think it's been an idea that's been out there for a very long time. But it's unsettling. We think people will waste the money. We think they'll stop working. And that's just not what the evidence tells us. So there was a moral judgment at the heart of the old aid system that you have to give people, you have to give money to deserving people, or you have to give them specific kinds of help, food, clothing that won't be wasted or or lead to moral squalor or whatever it is. I think that's right. And I think there's a certain implicit paternalism Uh, In a lot of what we were doing, we thought, oh, we'll give this person a goat because a goat is great for their life, or we'll give them this specific nutrition intervention. And as you reflect upon that, I think it's important to ask why. Why do we think this person is going to waste money? I certainly don't want to receive my salary in bags of rice or corn. I'd like salary in dollars, so I get to choose. But why do we treat other people differently? So is your premise that giving cash instead is more just and fair, or that it's more effective, or both? I think it's a bit of all. I think we should measure the impact of cash and compare it to other things. Us, the aid sector philanthropists, should have to make the argument to a recipient that we're doing more good with the money than they could themselves. And I think that's the minimum bar we should meet. And we often talk about that being the index fund or the benchmark for other interventions. But I also think there's an element about dignity and choice. And when you talk to the recipients, they'll tell you that. They'll say, this is not a large village. There's actually one village in Liberia with only seven people. But we all have different needs. 
I may need to send my child to secondary school and pay school fees. Someone else may want to feed their newborn and somebody else may want to buy a motorbike to start a business. It's impossible to know that from here, but the people who do know their needs are the people themselves. Now, being a group of academic economists who started this organization, I think you did something unusual as you set it up as a kind of study. Yeah, so we started with an evaluation. So before we got going, we knew that there are other cash evaluations, that cash transfers were an effective means of helping people, but we wanted to make sure that we give directly were also as effective. So we did that before even launching publicly. And what have you learned from the studies you've done? I guess, I mean, talk a little bit about that. I know you started first in Kenya and have expanded in East Africa and now elsewhere, but what are the oldest experiments in cash transfers now tell you? Yeah, and we're not even the oldest. Before us, there were cash programs in Brazil, Mexico, many places. Uh, so let's start with what it's not and what everybody's worried about. People do not spend it on alcohol and drugs, and they do not stop working. And I think that's been shown across contexts. What people do do is they spend the money well. And how they spend it is really context-specific. So you'll see projects that gave money to grandparents in South Africa, and that seems to have gone largely towards nutrition. You'll see other programs where business income increased. You'll see programs that during the cash transfer program itself, you actually saw a fall in HIV and STD prevalence. The range is wide. But that's sort of the point of cash, is that people have different needs, and we should expect the outcomes to be based on the specific needs. Now, there's the idea of cash transfers, which is that if you want to give aid, you should give money and not bags of rice or a goat. And then there's the idea of universal basic income, which is there's a version of that that people are talking about in the developed world as well. But your large-scale experiments in Africa are with UBI, universal basic income, right? Yeah, so universal basic income has come to mean a lot of things in the media. And in my view, it's something very specific. So it's universal. So you don't go and try to find the poorest person in the village. You give it to everybody. Everybody in the village. Everybody in the village. It could be everybody in the country, depending on how broad your scope. It's basic, so it's not a large amount of money. It's a small enough amount of money that you can get by. So in the case of Kenya, we're giving 75 cents a day, which is the food poverty line. And then it's an income. So it's over a long period of time. This isn't a one-time transfer or not. We're actually doing the first long-term universal basic income that's ever been done anywhere. Uh, that's in Kenya, and people will be getting money for 12 years. So tell me what's happened in, in one of these Kenyan villages where you're conducting this experiment with universal basic income. I mean, how are things changed? What is it like? Yeah, so I can give you the anecdotes. I can't give you the evidence quite yet. We're doing the evaluation and that hasn't come out yet. But anecdotally, it's, it's incredibly interesting. So I think you see many of the kind of standard spending decisions, whether it's on school fees or food um, or a pair of houses that you might see elsewhere. But I think there's a social element of the universality that makes it a bit different than some of the other programs. And I think a reci re recent recipient said it best when he said, look, before universal basic income, there was rich and poor in the village. Now we're all universal basic income recipients. We can talk about the $22 a month that we're receiving as a community. And we can have that conversation openly in a way that we wouldn't talk about our investments or funding otherwise. The second thing you see is you actually see a pooling of resources because of this. You see groups of 10 people that will actually start lending to each other. So each month, one person out of that group will take all the money so that they can make an investment. 
and the next month you'll see someone else. And then you see other pro-social behaviors. So I was in the house of a village elder and she said, you know what's really amazing? One of my jobs is to break up marital disputes. And I usually have two to three marital disputes a month that I need to intervene. I haven't had one in four and a half months. And you give to every adult in the village. So in a, in a family, husband, wife, not the children, obviously, do they get a larger grant depending on how many children they have? No. So the children will get if they're 18 and above. So once they're 18, they'll start receiving basic income as well. But it's at the individual level. And as you say, the results aren't in. And I know you have kind of control villages where you're not doing this. But what do you hope to see from this experiment? What do you hope it'll show? The beauty of cash is that we're agnostic, which is I don't have a preference for what a recipient spends money on. And that's different than a lot of how we've historically thought about aid and structured the sector. So some organizations might have a mandate for shelter, for food security, for children, in which case the organization would hope that they'd see a food security outcome or an education outcome. I don't have specific hopes. I hope this improves people's lives and that you don't see any of the things that you might worry about. But given just the kind of magnitude of evidence on cash at this point, I'm not particularly concerned about that. But if you're giving someone $1,000 a year, you'd like to see that they are, in some sense, $1,000 a year better off. Well, they, sh they should be at least $1,000 better off. And that's sort of it. They will be at least $1,000 better off. Maybe they invest it in a motorbike and they start working so that compounds over time. And one element of cash that people often forget is that cash is very pro-market. So if I get $1,000, I need to spend that $1,000. So if I spend it on improving my home, I might actually be paying someone in the next village to do that. And that person may spend the money. And there is a paper that is forthcoming that suggests that there's a strong positive impact on even those that haven't received the cash. It sounds obvious at this point that you give $1,000 and someone gets $1,000 of benefit, but the benchmark isn't that. The benchmark is $1,000 spent on aid in the conventional aid world doesn't necessarily produce anything like $1,000 in benefit. In fact, a lot of it is lost in the friction and transaction costs of delivering aid. It's exactly right. It's back to basics. Even that basic question of if you start with $1,000 on another program, how much value winds up in the hands of recipient is a question that we really just don't know the answer to as a sector. And the other aspect of this, I always think of this story. There's a program that gave coupons to buy goats. And this was in Pakistan. And you take your coupon to the business owner and you give him the coupon and he'd give you a goat. And they sent monitors to evaluate the program. And the monitor is sitting outside and every person comes, coupon goat, coupon goat. And it looks great. And at some point, he says to him, you know, all the goats just look so, so similar in this market. And walked around the back and realized that after people would get their goat, they'd just sell it back to the shopkeeper. <laughs> there is one goat in the village. Wow. And what you forget is that when you give people things that they don't want or don't need, they can just sell them to buy what they do want and do need. And now we've spent all this time designing this sophisticated program to get people goats because everyone loves a goat and everyone's just sold their goat for cash. How does it actually work in these villages? Is someone handing out piles of cash every month? No, they're doing this on their phones mostly, so right? So it's surprisingly complicated, the operations. It seems simple, but there's a lot of work. Um, so we have to go 
find the people that we want to target, look for the extreme poor, validate that they are who they say they are, and that we're not having people try to game the system, people squatting in houses, people cheating. We do all sorts of things. We actually pay people to try to cheat our own system to understand how robust it is. You have, you have white hat hackers. It's exactly what we have. Yeah, wow. And that's a bit of putting the recipient at the center. It's how prone to fraud is your system? We also do customer satisfaction surveys where you treat it with respect. Uh, and then we pay people and incentivize them based on it because we want to be treating the recipient as the customer and not the donor, even though the donor is paying. But how does the Kenyan villager actually get her money? Does it show up on her so mobile phone? Does she have a mobile phone? They get phone? a text that says you've received a thousand shillings from Give Directly. They then can take that to a local shopkeeper or whomever and exchange that for physical cash and then spend the physical cash. So this is digital end to end. We can sit here in this room and send digital money to someone's phone in a Kenyan refugee settlement. I mean, they're engaging in some cases in transactions that people in the developed world don't have access to, right? Is this because they- Yeah, they, they had Venmo before we had Venmo. Why they is just that? Because they skipped some of the technology we had and went straight to what we're, well, that's we've what's got great. now. Yeah. Which is there was no banking. There was no financial inclusion or digital finance for a large swath of the world's population. And now everybody has an ATM and bank in their pocket. And that's completely changed what's feasible. So if you go back when we started this a decade or so ago, you had the evidence that this thing we thought was really silly worked and you had the technology to actually make it feasible. But it wasn't that simple. I mean, and I know you had to set up essentially a, a separate company to help facilitate these cash transfers across international borders, right? Yeah, the opportunity of mobile payments is there. As is always the case, the execution and operations is more challenging than you would like. So we wound up setting up Segovia, uh, which was an enterprise payments company uh, that was actually recently acquired by Crown Agents Bank. Now, cash is a, is a bit of a buzzword now in the development world. I think institutions and organizations that haven't traditionally been involved in cash transfers are now talking about them as what they want to be doing or part of what they want to be doing. What's really happening there? Is it your idea catching on or are you antagonistic to a lot of the existing aid at infrastructure? We should take no credit for the idea. The idea of giving people money goes back millennia. So there's been a real shift, certainly in the rhetoric uh, and the commitments people are making. I think it is going to be hard to move the sector because in many ways, cash fits everywhere. Cash impacts all of the objectives people have, nutrition, education, and so on, but it also fits nowhere. It may not be the single best intervention for a single outcome. And that's something that we're going to have to wrestle with as a sector. The way I think of it is there is a lot of capital going to aid, $150 billion of development assistance now. Historically, almost all of that has been decided by the donor, what we spend that money on. Now, you may not think 100% of it should shift to recipient choice, but I think all of us would agree that it should be more than 0%. They should get to vote and choose over some fraction of that capital spend. But it points to, among other things, a much smaller development infrastructure. There are fewer people, I imagine, working for Give Directly than some of the more traditional organizations we're talking about that have large numbers of people on the ground involved in the delivery of physical aid. Yeah, that, that may be true. Uh, Give Directly 
we have 250 or so employees. So it's not a small number uh, of employees and it certainly still takes work. But yeah, you'd be spending less time making the decisions. I recently heard a story from an aid worker that was a recent cash convert. And I said, well, what did it? She said, well, you know, we were just spending months and months internally debating what brand of food we should be buying for this settlement. We don't need to spend months debating. We can give the money and let the household decide what brand of food, or maybe they don't even want food. Michael, I wanted to ask you about disaster relief. I think there were calls, especially after the uh, hurricane and flooding in Houston, for some kind of direct cash type model to get help to victims of the storm faster. And I know you're trying to set something like that up. Yeah, we should give Felix credit. Felix Salmon wrote an op-ed saying we need Give Directly in Houston. And then Felix uh, Salmon, the the journalist journalist now at Axios. And then we set up and did cash transfers in Houston. I think disaster spend is often some of the least efficient spend in the sector that you see. I was in Houston and you saw piles of used clothes, piles of water bottles, a food truck serving rice and beans. Now that sounds great until you realize that the tap is working and people can get water from their faucet, that the Walmart and other restaurants are open down the street, and that what people need is different. Some people need to repair their car because it was flooded and they can't get to work. Some people need to rebuild their house. Uh, So we did cash transfers in Houston. What we're going to do next and just announced a partnership with Google on is actually something called pre-positioning. It's when we raise the money and are ready in advance of the disaster, and that'll allow us to be on the ground immediately following the disaster. And how will that work? I mean, if Houston happened now, how would you determine who gets aid and how would you be delivering it? Yeah, so it's a combination of damage from the storm and poverty levels. So you want to find high damage, obviously, and those most in need. The way we've delivered it in the U.S. was through debit cards. So we didn't use mobile money in the U.S. And going forward, we'll likely use something called HyperWallet, which is just a very flexible card product. So people get essentially a gift card that they can use to Anywhere deal with getting the roof fixed or whatever that whatever they It's essentially need. cash, but it's stored on a card. But how do you determine who gets how much? Is it a function of how much you have d- divided by how many qualified victims or recipients? So I think it's one of the hardest questions, how much versus how many people. I think historically, the sector has always opted for a high number of people. And I think we've likely gone too far where we want the headline, we've served a million people. Well, if we've given a million people a dollar, we probably haven't done much good. So we try to be thoughtful. We try to price how much we give to what the investments are that people need to make. So what would a car repair look like? What would it look like to pay rent for a year? Those sorts of things. People react emotionally, which is on the one hand, wonderful and understandable, but can produce very irrational results. I think people came forward and gave over a billion dollars to restore Notre Dame after the fire. And probably none of that money is needed because the French government would ultimately pay for it. But whether it's needed or not, probably more than it's needed and certainly money that would be better spent elsewhere. Whether it's more or less, I don't know. In the specific examples, I think the timing is what's really flawed, which is you look at some of these disaster funds and they still haven't spent the money years and years after the disaster. That's awful. 
people need money immediately to start rebuilding their lives. Cash actually provides an avenue to do that pretty quickly. Uh, we can get that cash out quickly. We don't need to wait years to pick a grant recipient who may repair a building or whatnot. We can just give it to the individuals. I wanted to come back to the universal basic income idea and ask you about it in, here in the United States where it's there are some experiments taking place and there's also a lot of controversy around the idea, partly because some people see it as a kind of answer to the loss of jobs through to robotics and AI. Are you involved in that debate at all? What do you think about it? I think it's a complicated question in the US. And I think how we fund a true universal basic income, there's a real question mark around that. But I think the elements of universal basic income, I think we can take to current social programs. So if you look at some of the poorest people in this country, they face some of the highest marginal tax rates because as they earn more money, they lose more benefits, uh, in some cases approaching 100% of the money they're earning. I think that's a problem. That's a real disincentive to work. If we could flatten that and make it more universal and remove that disincentive, that's valuable. I think food stamps and other programs that may be limiting to people and may not be exactly what they need probably can be improved. So I think there are the principles of universal basic income that we can apply to other social programs while we wait to see what the actual impact of a universal basic income is. But you don't see it so much as an answer to the problem of the loss of jobs, the decline of work or replacement for work. I think we're going to certainly need something if that happens. And one thing I always say is, I don't know what the likelihood of that happening is. I do know with confidence that it's between zero and 100%. And given that there's some chance that you have mass unemployment from automation, we should be starting to think about what those solutions are and starting to trial them and understand what the implications are. Unsolvable, we always like to ask what people listening can do in this case, it seems pretty simple. It's give cash, right? Give cash. I think learn a bit about what our beneficiaries' lives are like. Go to live.givedirectly.org, which is an unfiltered streaming feed from recipients. Start a conversation with friends or family about cash. People love debating whether or not giving is a good or bad thing. Always looking for really talented people to work at Give Directly. So there's lots to do. Can you decide when you go to the Give Directly website whether to give money to a village in Kenya or a refugee camp in Uganda? I mean, the different programs or places you're involved in are all there. So we let people choose which project to give to. We don't let people choose which individual. And is that something you've thought about? I'm, I'm sure it is. But obviously, with the more traditional kinds of aids, part of the marketing of it and part of the appeal is you're helping this person, this child. Here's her picture. Yeah. And sometimes that's honest and sometimes it's less honest. Even in the honest cases, I think it's a bit problematic because people have a tendency to fund kind of attractive people and not the types of people that you necessarily design a social program for. So you're in in your case, you don't see the individuals. You see the place. You don't see the individuals. 
we could wind up chasing the attractive recipients around Kenya to give cash, and that's probably uh, both complicated and bad social policy. To conclude, I wonder if you can give me your sense of the overall picture. There's another interesting debate going on about extreme poverty. There are statistics that show it's gotten dramatically better in in recent decades. At the same time, it seems in places more shocking and worse than ever. Do you think we're winning the fight against extreme poverty? We've made a lot of progress in extreme poverty. I think it's going to be harder going forward because it is concentrated in places with conflict, weaker states, so it will certainly be harder. But as I think about that problem, there are two numbers that help me dimensionalize it. Uh, So if you look at the poverty gap over the last 40 years or so, so this is the amount of money that would mathematically be required to take every person above poverty. So if you're at a dollar and the poverty line's $1.90, it's 90 cents for you. So that's been falling, which is great news over time. Uh, And it's probably somewhere around 80 billion today. On the other side is foreign aid, how much money we send to extremely poor places. And that's been increasing, which is also good news and stands about 150 billion today. What happened eight years or so ago is those two graphs crossed for the first time, which is that there is now about double the amount of aid spent that would mathematically be required to end extreme poverty via closing the poverty gap. And of course, there's nuance behind that. Of course, we can't just snap our fingers and drop money on those that need it most. But just to think about the relative dimensions, that makes me think that this is very possible. That's Those are fascinating numbers. It suggests that 100% efficiency, were it possible, would eliminate extreme poverty. If we could all do magic and get cash, we can't do magic yet, but we can do a whole lot better than we did 10 years ago with the advent of mobile money, new technologies, uh, and we're getting there. Michael, thanks for joining us on Solve. Thanks so much. Oh, I love to see it. As Michael Fay said, the social element of the universality is really interesting. Here in the US, we're grappling with growing inequality. I'm not saying that it's as serious as the poverty in the countries Michael works in, but I'm saying that there are lessons for us here too. Also, he uses the phrase, the beauty of cash, which I just think is such a good tattoo idea, don't you? Like you would have to have small print too, stating your tattoo is an anti-poverty measure, but that only makes it more cool. Solvable is a collaboration between Pushkin Industries and the Rockefeller Foundation, with production by Laura Hyde, Hester Kant, Laura Sheeter, and Ruth Barnes from Chalk and Blade. Pushkin's executive producer is Mia LaBelle, research by Sher Vincent, engineering by Jason Gambrell and the great folks at GSI Studios. Original music composed by Pascal Wise, and special thanks to Maggie Taylor, Heather Fine, Julia Barton, Carly Migliori, Jacob Weisberg, and Malcolm Gladwell. You can learn more about solving today's biggest problems at rockefellerfoundation.org slash solvable. I'm Maeve Higgins. Now go solve it.
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 